This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Mark Meadows' late-game decision to stiff-arm the January 6th committee has laid bare the myriad of challenges facing the Democrats in their quest to extract accountability and perhaps a shred of contrition from the perpetrators of the January insurrection. It seems that the closer the committee gets to the truth, the more furiously Trump and his cohorts are throwing shit into a fan and try to muddy the landscape. Today, former President Trump's White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, he declined to appear for testimony that he had been subpoenaed to give this morning. The investigation says that Mark Meadows is therefore likely to be found in contempt. He's potentially um, going to be criminally prosecuted for contempt. But Mr. Meadows ended the day today by suing the committee that's conducting the investigation in what appears to be an effort to to drag this thing out, to slow it down. Meadows said that he decided to withdraw his cooperation after it was discovered the House committee sought his phone records and had subpoenaed third-party carriers seeking his communications and texts from January 6th and the days leading up to the insurrection. He told Real America News that he considers these documents protected by executive privilege. Coming up tonight on Real America, President Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, joins us to discuss the January 6th commission and his decision to not cooperate with the Democrat-led witch hunt. Uh, What we found over the last uh, couple of days, honestly, was uh, that the committee was fully intending uh, to continue to press forward, asking about executive privilege uh, items, things that are protected by that. In addition, we found that in spite of our cooperation and sharing documents with them, they had uh, issued, unbeknownst to us and not, without even a courtesy call, uh, uh, issued a subpoena to a third-party carrier trying to get information. Uh, and so at this point, we uh, we feel like it, it's best that we just continue to uh, honor the executive privilege, and it looks like the courts are going to have to weigh in on this. But it's more likely related to the fact that the committee found not one, but numerous smoking guns in Meadows' files, and believes that his phone records will paint a fuller portrait of what was happening in the White House as Ryan ransacked the Capitol and what the president was doing. I thought there was a tell uh, in that interview uh, that Meadows had. The, the thing that they're the most scared about are the phone records. So who called yeah. whom? Yeah. Because that's going to reveal the TikTok of who Donald Trump's calling, uh, who they're calling, who's furiously calling them to try to get uh, you know Donald Trump to actually call out the National Guard and save the lives of people inside the Capitol. But for him, for Meadows, he goes, oh, well, when they did what, by the way, everybody does in every lawsuit. This is what everybody does. You get the phone records, you get you get you get office, you get everything. You get the files in discovery. On Tuesday, committee chairman Mississippi's Benny Thompson revealed a 38-page PowerPoint presentation entitled Options for January 6th. The PowerPoint was created by Meadows, but it was part of a briefing given by someone in the White House entitled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference, and Options for January 6th. CNN hosts Dana Bash and Jim Shudo called it a roadmap for overturning the election. The extension is that he's going to incur tens of thousands of dollars in legal costs 
uh, to protect someone who obviously doesn't want, you know, would never protect him if the situation was reversed. He's already dumped on his book. Uh, he's calling it fake news. Um, it's it's a it just shows how one sided these relationships. Well, yeah, the loyalty. Can be. If Meadows refuses to cooperate, he'll be referred for criminal prosecution, and just like Steve Bannon, his testimony will disappear. The fact remains that there is a ticking clock, and each day is another day closer to the midterm elections, and the reality that the GOP will probably retake the majority. Then it's game fucking over. A recent essay by Barton Gelman for The Atlantic spotlights where all this is heading, and it's a terrifying reality. Gelman writes that, and I quote, Technically, the next attempt to overthrow a national election may not qualify as a coup. It will rely on subversion more than violence, although each will have its place. If the plot succeeds, the ballot cast by American voters will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands of votes will be thrown away, or millions, to produce the required effect. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will be certified president-elect. I, I think there's a, a strong ongoing message uh, that is amplified thousands of times by the whole uh, ecosystem on the right uh, that is a propaganda ecosystem. Uh, and, and it is telling people uh, that someone stole the election from them, uh, that uh, the Democrats are destroying the country, uh, that more and more and more so-called evidence uh, proves these things. And yeah, I, I, I think the uh, there's this very large mass of Trump supporters who believe both that Biden is an illegitimate president who stole the office and that violence is justified. What most security analysts are saying is that January 6th was just practice, a dress rehearsal for a larger, more thorough and sinister authoritarian butch to take over the government. I have said on this show time and time again that what scared me was not necessarily Donald Trump, the man in a buffoon and a carnival sideshow but rather a smarter, less flawed, more studied and capable version of Donald Trump who watched and learned from his errors and would ride in on the coattails of the chaos that he wrought. The charlatans and cranks who filed lawsuits and led public spectacles on Trump's behalf were sideshows. They distracted from the main event, a systematic effort to nullify the election results and then reverse them. This is happening right now, Gelman adds, and I quote, for more than a year now, with tacit and explicit support from their party's national leaders, state Republican operatives have been building an apparatus of election theft. Elected officials in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and other states have studied Donald Trump's crusade to overturn the 2020 election. They have noted the points of failure and have taken concrete steps to avoid failure next time. Some of them have rewritten statutes to seize partisan control of decisions about which ballots to count and which to discard, which results to certify and which to reject. Operatives around the country uh, at every level from statewide uh, down to local precincts are doing their best to take over the machinery of election administration. So you have uh, in seven states, there are avowed 
exponents of the big lie, uh, pretending that Donald Trump won the last presidential election, who are running for Secretary of State, which in most states is the office that oversees and controls and makes fundamental decisions about the conduct of the election. Uh, they're competing for Trump's endorsement. Trump has already endorsed three of them. Uh, these are people who say that had they been in that office last time, they would not have certified the result uh, uh, that the voters voted for. Yes. Uh, they, they, would, they, would, they would have said that Donald Trump won, uh, notwithstanding uh, what the voters said. They're driving out or stripping power from election officials who refused to go along with the plot last November, aiming to replace them with exponents of the big lie. They are fine-tuning a legal argument that purports to allow state legislators to override the choice of the voters. Republicans are methodically going through all the ways that Trump tried to overthrow the last election and got thwarted. And they are trying to clear the path so that he could do it again successfully next time. This isn't the first time Bart has predicted such an attack on the democratic system. Six weeks before the last presidential election, he accurately anticipated in detail that then-President Trump would try to undermine the results. We should also remember that I also predicted this would happen in my own testimony before Congress in 2019. The other thing that is so striking is the Democrats. Do you think this is a reality they don't see? Do you think this is a state-by-state-by-state state state fight they're not equipped to wage? Or what is your understanding of the Democratic Party's posture? Biden gave a speech in July in which he said that, uh, that this voter subversion is the biggest test of our democracy since the Civil War. Uh, that would signal something that would sound like a presidential priority. Uh, but Biden and his people are not making a priority of uh, protecting democracy. They clearly are valuing infrastructure uh, and social spending and climate and a number of other priorities above democracy. Uh, they are not treating this as an emergency, uh, and I think they're going to regret that. The difference is that Trump and his cronies are better prepared to do so in 2024. And here's why. They have the numbers. The big lie has radicalized tens of millions of Americans, some to the point of violence. The former president has built the first American mass political movement in the past century that is ready to fight by any means necessary, including bloodshed for its cause, Bart writes. This really is a new politically violent mass movement, Robert A. Pape, who studies such violence, including the January 6th attack, told Bart. Pape compared this period in America to the late 1960s in Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles. And there was political violence in Northern Ireland for decades on the basis of a number of about 13 or 14 percent of the population was willing to use political violence. We are there now. And the normalization of political violence as a part of America, as a feature of American politics, that is the thing that scares me along with the political stuff. The undercurrent of it is what's so scary, and it's very, very hard to deal with, and it really shows you how central Trump is personally. This is a problem broader than Trump, but the Trump really is at the core of this problem. And this time, they may have the means. Republican acolytes have identified the weak points in our electoral apparatus and are methodically exploiting them, Bart reports. 
they've rewritten election statutes to wrestle partisan control over ballot counts. Republican operatives and conservatives and, uh, and Trump allies are analyzing everything that went wrong in the coup attempt last time, everything that thwarted Trump, whether it was uh, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, the Secretary of State saying, uh, no, we will not find 12,000 more votes for Trump than actually exist, uh, or whether it was uh, court cases, or whether it was state legislatures. Uh, and they're going around uh, methodically and finding ways to uh, to, to cure uh, the defects, as they say, see it, uh, that prevented them from battling the coup last time. They've aimed to fill key positions with more sympathetic allies. They are organizing around the doctrine that could give states a legal basis to throw out votes and may prove appealing to the conservative-leaning Supreme Court. And so they're changing laws. They are, uh, they're, they're sort of whipping up uh, a mass movement uh, with false claims of election fraud, uh, and they are preparing uh, to steal the election in a somewhat more respectable way uh, by taking control of the structures and the institutions uh, that officially have to make the decisions. Usually, after a politician loses, not only the general election, but both houses, they are cast out into the political wilderness. Autopsies are conducted for what went wrong and the party changes course. But Trump retains an iron grip on the GOP, who remains, with few exceptions, in his thrall. Gelman writes that Trump has reconquered his party by setting its base on fire. Tens of millions of Americans perceive their world through black clouds of his smoke. His deepest source of strength is the bitter grievance of Republican voters that they lost the White House and are losing their country to alien forces with no legitimate claim to power. This is not some transient or loosely committed population. So Trump has truly radicalized tens of millions of people who, who genuinely believe that the election was stolen. Now, the vast majority of Republican elected officials know and would confess if you gave them a sufficient quantity of truth serum uh, that Biden won the election. Uh, but they can't let on they know that because the base is now uh, so filled with angry passion about it and, and so misled uh, that it's unsafe for an elected Republican to acknowledge Biden as a legitimate president. Gelman points to research from the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, which conducted polling aimed at measuring how willing Trump's supporters might be to endorse violence. In the June results, just over 8% agreed that Biden was illegitimate and that violence was justified to restore Trump to the White House. That corresponds to 21 million American adults it's fucking insane. They haven't cooled off or backed off from the literally revolutionary implications of what Trump tried to do to overturn the election. Over the past year, instead, Republican voters have become more militant on the subject and more likely to embrace violence as a potential solution. He says, quote, Donald Trump came closer than anyone thought he could to toppling a free election a year ago. He is preparing in plain view to do it again. 
and his position is growing stronger. In addition, polling from Public Religion Research Institute conducted in September found that three in 10 Republicans agreed with the idea that true American patriots may have to resort to violence because things have gotten so far off track. Among those who think the 2020 election was stolen, the figure is four in 10. What Gelman is saying is that this is no longer the territory of fringe lunatics. These people are now the vanguard of what has become a mass political movement. At no point in time has Trump expressed any serious concern about the risk of right-wing political violence centered on the 2020 election. Even on January 6th, he patted the rioters on the head as he encouraged them to go home in one of his last social media posts before Twitter and Facebook decided that the risk he might foment more violence outweighed the value of extending him a platform. The riot on January 6th was always part and parcel of his violent rhetoric and calls to action. He wanted this to happen, then cheered on the mob as they ransacked the Capitol. And now for the main event. Barton Gelman's vision of political violence proved prescient in 2020. The prospect of something far worse happening in 2024 should be on the forefront of all of our minds. The Democrats seem willfully blind to the fact that no matter how fucking hard they run against Donald Trump or January 6th, there is a hardcore cadre of millions of MAGA diehards who simply don't fucking care and they're ready to spill more blood. To understand this terrifying new reality, I reached out to former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, Frank Fogluzzi. A return guest on Mea Culpa, Fogluzzi spent 25 years with the Bureau and was known as America's preeminent spy catcher. In addition, Fogluzzi was the keeper of the code and was appointed the FBI's chief inspector by then-director Robert Mueller. Charged with overseeing sensitive internal inquiries, shooting reviews, and performance audits, he ensured each employee met the Bureau's exacting standards of performance, integrity, and conduct. Today, he writes a weekly national security column for MSNBC, he also hosts the amazing Beyond the Bureau podcast, which is a must-listen, so please check it out. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as Mark Meadows withdraws his cooperation from the January 6th committee. But his main concern is what Barton Gelman posited in his Atlantic essay, that a new wave of political violence from right-wing radicals is headed our way, and we need to take that threat seriously. So let's listen now to that conversation. So, Frank, the big news this morning is the reversal by Mark Meadows that he will not cooperate with the January 6th committee. Now, normally, as I'm preparing questions and so on, I sort of lump everything in together. But this one is so relevant and it's so crazy that I got to break it down into several different questions. So first, first off, why do you think that there's a reversal? Yeah, I I think, look, behind the scenes, my gut tells me, and it's more than gut because it's 
it's we have now a documented track record of how Trump deals with people who say they're cooperating or whatever. I, I think they got to him. I, I think he was told or strongly suggested to back out of any kind of cooperation. And I I have to tell you, uh, it's certain because so, it certainly isn't based on any amazing legal opinion that has come in, you know, just breaking news from the legal front, you you have a very strong executive privilege case. I, I don't think that's the case. And so um, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm in a way very pleased with this. Here's why. We were going to play a game with Meadows, right, where he dragged out, stalled, delayed as long as possible, um, pretended he was cooperating. And, and I say, great, now we've gotten to the real Mark Meadows. Now let's let's go. Let's go, let's go to court. Let's go to the DOJ. Let's refer him. There is no there is no game being played any longer. Okay. And then so let me go to the second part of that question. What do you think this means for the committee? So some tough decisions here which they are fully prepared I'm sure to wrestle with because they've been wrestling with it. He is um the strongest candidate yet to claim to make a claim for executive privilege. But let, let's let's educate the listeners who now have become very savvy. Uh, all, all of the folks who listen to you or me are, are have, have gotten like law school 101 on this. But let's remind let's yeah, but let's remind people he doesn't have a claim of executive privilege. The claim, of course, belongs to the office of the president. He's he's not there. And so if any any tangential claim would come through Donald Trump, and of course, he has now famously said, Meadows, that Trump has asked him not, you know, as as have others said, please, you know, don't testify. I'm going to go with uh, executive privilege claim. So it's not him. Just a reminder for the nerds out there. It's not him that makes the claim. It's Trump that has to make the claim. And I don't think he's got one for for conduct uh, that includes criminal conduct, nor do I think an ex-president has one. But we're about to find out that this is where this is going. The committee is going to is going to refer him now that he has basically drawn the line in the sand. Um, They've got to. They have no choice. Okay, so if the committee refers him for criminal prosecution, they lose his testimony when it goes over to the other side and Meadows, by all accounts, was actually for them mission control for the most insane effort to overturn the election. So discuss this as a procedure for my listeners. Well, here's what I think, and wait, please weigh in uh, on this. I know you've you've looked at this uh, every which way you can. Um, one of the remedies for a contempt finding is to for the uh, uncooperative witness to produce what's being requested. So I, I think you know everybody has visions of you know, Bannon or, or Meadows, you know, behind bars in some, in some, uh, you know, prison suit. Remember the remedy here should be first and foremost, you must produce what's being requested. So um, I, 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 when you say you've, they've lost his testimony, the end result here, if this all works would be uh, a judge saying, or even a grand jury in the in District of Columbia, saying uh, cough it up, cough cough this stuff up. So I, all is not lost with regard to what he's going to produce. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, simply because he, the general consensus is that he's going to take the fifth. Now, of course, we all know what Trump said in the past because it behooved him to say that only mob bosses and only mobsters take the fifth. 
Well, Donald, despite the fact that you've been calling me and my family, you know, for years now, mobsters and gangsters, right? Um, (laughs) Nobody in my family took the fifth, myself included. Where the problem now lies is the fact that Mark Meadows, I mean, look, there's an article that just came out, which I thought was extremely funny. It's in the hillreporter.com. It's by uh, a young by a young journalist named Steph Basil. And the title of it, Michael Cohen declares Mark Meadows, and I quote now, dumbest asshole on the hill for his January 6th investigation decision. And what we're really talking about here, and they, they say they sum it up very, very nicely. Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal attorney and fixer, has a lot of strong opinions about people in the Trump camp. Well, we know that from listening to Maya Culpa. I certainly do. Um, and that he's been talking freely to Congress prosecutors, uh, prosecutors, podcast subscribers, right? That's all my loyal fans and listeners here on Maya Culpa. The reason why I say that Mark Meadows is the dumbest asshole is because he put out a book stating, for the most part, what many of the questions would have been about. You cannot put out the book and then declare executive privilege or take the fifth. It just, it interferes with that whole process. Genuinely, generally, what you do, if you're going to take the fifth, and you know you're going to take the fifth, as prosecutors or criminal defense attorneys will always tell you, shut the fuck up. But not Meadows, because he wanted, like Donald, his cake and be able to eat it too. He wanted to be able to put out a book, make himself fump some money, and at the, same point in, at the same point in time, he was going to then turn around and continue to kiss the fat ass of the supreme leader, in this case, in Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump. So first, um, let's point out the fact that you had an incredible number of people in the universe of Trump orbit to choose from when declaring one of them the dumbest asshole. So we ought to pay attention when you selected one of those people, and it happens to be his former chief of staff. That's number one. Number two, I, like you, I tweeted this issue of, hey, you and I and I was on the air at MSNBC saying this, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, uh, hey, I got a guy asking me to claim executive privilege uh, on his behalf, and I can't talk about anything I did in the White House. Uh, But by the way, please go to Amazon.com and purchase my book, which talks about (laughs) in the White House. You can't you can't do that. And to the degree and and this is going to get down in the weeds. I think the committee is going to have to struggle and perhaps some grand jury uh, someday is going to have to struggle with page by page, chapter by chapter in Meadows book. What did he disclose and how close does it get to what he's refusing to testify to. But as a general concept, you are correct. You can't have it both ways uh, and say, I want to make a, I want to make as much money as possible out of a full disclosure book and uh, simultaneously claim executive privilege for, for the kind of stuff or even the exact stuff that's in the book. One question I have here, having not read the book and have no intention to purchase the book is Neither whether, has anybody else. I heard it's well, doing very poorly. I'm, I'm waiting for the competition between his book and Chris Christie, and we'll see how low we how low the sales will be. But but um, did he go through? And maybe you know the answer to this. Those of us who are former federal government employees know very well that we must go through. I I wrote a book, the FBI way, had to go through ex- exhaustive FBI pre-publication review. Um, 
famously, you know, we we know that people in the White House have written books and had to and, and are in great controversy over whether their review or not was appropriate. Did he, you know, as a former White House chief of staff, did anybody, uh, any professional career person in pre-publication review with the White House review his book? Because if they did and they approved what's in the book, he's got an even weaker claim of executive privilege. Yeah, or any privilege there, you know, thereafter. It's really an, it's an incredible thing, especially considering, and I think you already stated it, Donald's not the executive anymore. He's not the chief executive officer. He's not the president of the United States. He is a civilian. He is the former guy. And somewhere along the line, that's another issue. But we all know what they're up to. We know what the game. Delay, delay, delay. Yeah. Hope and pray to God that the midterm elections benefit the Republicans and then kill it at the House. That's what they're all looking to do. And it's not just Mark Meadows, despite the fact, and I will say it again openly, and accurately, he is by far the dumbest asshole on the Hill. All right. Um, it, it's, it just is what it is. And I had enough interaction with him to turn around to feel comfortable in saying that. But I want to move on for a quick second because he's not the only one that's anticipated to plead the fifth. Jeffrey Clark's decision, or his counsel's decision for that part, that he will plead the fifth on questions directed towards him from the January 6th committee, suggests, at least it does to me, that he knows a crime has been committed. What's the crime, and who ultimately would prosecute Clark, uh, not for contempt of Congress, but for any illegality stemming from his attempts to use the Department of Justice to overturn the 2020 election? And also, what does pleading the fifth give you the ability to do? Are there some questions that he just cannot evade? Obviously, what is your name? Where do you live? What was the position you held? Yeah, great. All great questions. So first, let's back up and remember that DOJ has already said long ago to their employees and former employees, you are free to testify and cooperate regarding your work here at DOJ and the interests of uh, the, uh, the January 6th investigation. So number one, he realizes he can, Clark realizes he cannot fall back on any claim of, oh, uh, this is sensitive DOJ work. Oh, um, this is executive privilege. They, they went, nope, nope, nope. So he's left with Fifth Amendment. The, the, there is great value, by the way, in people like him getting up on national television, if, if they show up, and claiming one after another Fifth Amendment. I, I like the optics of that. I think it hurts them and the GOP significantly for that claim. People, even, even, you know, avid Trumpsters have to scratch their head and go, geez, that's not an executive privilege claim. That's, that's the fifth amendment. And, and my, my guy, Trump, he says only gangsters do that. So that that's helpful. Now underlying substantive criminal charges for somebody like Clark, I believe that he absolutely attempted to interfere with a valid election. There are election laws. There are fraud laws that could and should apply to this. And the interesting thing is, he was so far outside the scope of his employment. That's a legal phrase that people may be familiar with. It's a big deal in DOJ. It's a big deal in the FBI because generally, you know, FBI agents are out there doing pretty high risk things and they, they know DOJ has got their back as long as they are, quote, 
within the scope of their employment. Clark is, you know, has sawed that limb off. He's on his own. So um, he he should uh, and possibly would be prosecuted federally for election interference and fraud. And oh, and by the way, and and by the way, you know, interesting now you're aware of the so-called metadata that's been found. This is a breadcrumb trail. This is my layman's non-IT cyber term for people. When you hear metadata on the letter that he was drafting actually traces back to the White House, that's a crumb, that's breadcrumb trail back to the White House. This is colossal information as to the involvement of the White House. For those who say, ah, this is piling on Trump, you know, there's no proof. Oh, oh, this is this is being not covered enough in the news that there's metadata linking that letter about the Georgia elections to the White House. Yeah. So, you know, there was an interesting article um, in CNN uh, by uh, the author of the article, Paul LeBlanc, and they talk about, for example, what does it mean for the January 6th committee? Pretty much like the question that I was asking you. And I have a very different opinion than what they do. They think that this is a real problem uh, for the January 6th committee in terms of getting additional information, whether it's out of um, Jeffrey Clark or John Eastman or any of the other 35 people that they have now subpoenaed to come testify before the committee. And you, you took the words and what made me think about it was when you talk about the metadata. It's not just the metadata. What does that bring you to? That brings you to the documentary evidence, something I talk about extensively on this podcast. The documentary evidence, like what I provided to the House Oversight Committee, it is irrefutable. It has their fucking names on it. It has their signatures on it. It's them speaking to somebody else. Truth be told, I would want... I would want Mark Meadows to take the fifth. I would want um, John uh, Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman to take the fifth because then I could stand up as the chair of the committee and say, now I want to introduce into the record the following documents. Here's a document, for example, from Mark Meadows to the head of the Proud Boys declaring that they should go into the Capitol. I don't know what they have. I'm just giving, you know, obviously an easy example. But whatever that document, whatever those documents are, and whatever they reflect, has to be significant enough that an asshole like Mark Meadows or Eastman or Jeffrey Clark are willing to plead the fifth, knowing that generally, right, you plead the fifth when you are afraid of self-incrimination. Yeah. The problem, though, is with the documents, you're incriminated anyway. Right. So this is this is almost they've handcuffed themselves, these witnesses, haven't they? Because if if what the scenario you say plays out, and, and I think it will, and the, the nation sees the metadata, the breadcrumb trail, the fingerprints that point right to the White House on this attempt, at least for Georgia, um, to mess with their election results. Uh, and you and the witness pleads the fifth. Oh, I, they have no response. They have no response to this. And what if what if Mark Meadows is that metadata? What if it touched his computer, that that letter, that whole scam touched his office at the White House? You know who else is going to be very interested in this metadata? A district attorney in Georgia, because what are they doing in Georgia? They have their own investigation. We've learned recently there's a grand jury sitting 
in Georgia on Trump's attempt to mess with their election results, essentially, essentially extortionate demand of some kind. Um, now, could we have the state of Georgia investigating the metadata at the White House uh, and pointing to Trump? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sort of angry. I'm angry at the fact that there are actually people out there, and I'm not talking again about Trump or his sycophantic, you know, fools. I'm talking about others that are not doing everything necessary in order to bring these people to justice when the crime that's being committed is to is the is the attempted destruction of our democracy. I mean, for God's sakes, folks, what the fuck are they thinking? I mean, at some point in time, you have to say, okay, look, Donald was good for the economy. Okay, you could certainly say that. You know, he was certainly good for these top 10 of one percenters, right? Um, yes. The top 10th yeah. of the one percenters, you, you could say, right? Yeah. The guys, right, the, the guys who made something like, you know, close to a trillion dollars amongst themselves, the top 10 wealthiest folks. I could, I could understand that. So I could see how they would want that to continue. Everybody is, there's a capitalistic society and everybody is interested in the almighty dollar. I get that. But at what price? Are you willing to turn around and sacrifice democracy so you could have another fucking Lamborghini or another airplane or another home that you can only visit for one week out of the year, despite the fact you have it fully staffed? At what point are you going to say our Constitution is worth more than that? You already got enough for 50 lifetimes. So I think at what I, point? I, I think, look, I, I kind of pride myself over the years in, in my, my short media career. Michael, as being the kind of calm, reasonable explainer, right? I, I want to just explain how things should work and how they're working. I I am now, I am now in the mode of you know to use the, that age old analogy, the you know the frog in the in the in the pot of water doesn't understand that slowly the temperature is going to go to boil and he's going to die. Um, we're boiling right now. I'm I'm now saying we are at the boiling point. And with regard to our democracy uh, under siege, and uh, you know, an example uh, of this is, yeah, yesterday, at least yesterday for the day we're recording this, we learned that DOJ is suing the state of Texas for all the gerrymandering and redistricting, which is really going to prevent Democrats from winning key precincts in Texas. Same thing's going on in Ohio. Um, yeah, great. I applaud this the lawsuit against Texas, but they already did it. Texas, Texas already did it. They DOJ let this happen and, and should have stepped in earlier. And so this is going on around the country. And I don't, you know, I, I am, I'm not panicking, but I'm telling people and read the piece this week in the Atlantic magazine that talks about the scenario for 2020, uh, 20, for 2024, if not the midterms. Um, okay. So let's talk, so let's talk about that, Frank. Right. Because you actually, you highlighted the article. It's by Barton Gelman uh, from The Atlantic, right? And it's entitled, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. Yep. January 6th was just practice. Donald Trump's GOP is much better positioned to subvert the next election. So if you would, can you explain to me and to my listeners the ways in which Trump could subvert the next election? Well, I, again, the theme of this article is he's already done it. And so and here's here's the myriad ways that, that that's happening. 
I'm not going to touch on all of them, but we just talked about gerrymandering and redistricting. This is this is not um, random across the board, Texas, Ohio and other states saying, hey, you know, we should shake things up across the state. And re no, 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 no. There is a deliberate strategy here, you know, for, for places like Harris County, the Houston area in Texas, for uh, key districts throughout Ohio, where they're now they've now made it virtually impossible for minorities to vote minorities who they know tend to be voting democratic right it's it, it, they 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 can't win they can vote but because of the redistricting the way it's going to work out is their impact their voice will not be heard in the election now there may be naysayers out there who go hey frank a state can do whatever it wants to do for redistricting and gerrymandering you just don't like it it's ill uh, my response is this it's illegal to do it when it is based on an attempt to stop minorities from having their voice um, and 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 basically negating their vote. Let, let's go to another thing that, that they've done. Um, well, they've forced out, they have forced out moderate, reasonable, the few moderate, reasonable Republicans. And there's one from the Cleveland area, Congressman, um, who's just really a strong guy. He says, I can't take the death threats on my family anymore. I, I'm out. Um, the, the things are being put in place that will help ensure, oh, and limiting Texas, limiting the vote. Um, you know, you, you know, we're going to have one voter, one, one drop mail-in, or excuse me, one drop box in Harris County. Are, are you kidding me? In, in the entire Houston metropolitan area? Is that really what you're going to do? It's already happened. It's already happened. And here's the weird thing. Even if Trump were to lose in 2024, the confidence in, in, in the vote is such that we will we will have a riot on our hands that makes January 6 pale in comparison. He could lose and we'll still have we'll still have violence on our hands. OK, so let me just be clear, because my listeners get really anxious when people talk about Donald and 2024. He's not running. So what we need to do is we need to take that out of our minds right off the bat. This, as I state all the time, I did it on MSNBC with Alex Witt. I did it with Allison Kamrad on CNN when I was first released from home confinement. Donald's not running. And the reason he's not going to run is because he knows he's going to lose. All of this that we're talking about, while it's still a lot of people, it's millions and millions of people, it's not enough, including with all the gerrymandering. It's not enough for him to win a general election. State election, yes, but the numbers don't work for him and he knows it. So not to be a two-time loser and to continue to be able to grift off the money that comes in. You know, I speak to my folks every single day, right? And they tell me, you can't believe even to this day, how many text messages that they get from Trump campaign telling them, oh, you know, so-and-so is, you know, is being attacked by the, you know, by the radical left, you know, by the fascists uh, and so on. He goes, send $25, be one of the first of 100 and you get a, you know, you're going to get a plastic card that has Trump's name spelled wrong on it. I mean, this is the greatest grift in American history. Donald has realized, I don't need to work anymore. 
I don't need to go ahead and to start branding buildings because nobody wants to deal with me because I can't get a dollar from a single bank. So you know what? I'm just going to take it from the people who I despise the most, right? This dumb right group of people. And I'm just going to keep the grift going until the last day. And then I'm going to turn around and come up with an excuse on why it is that I can't run. This is bullshit. He's not running. It's nothing but the grift. So, so first, you've, you, have, you are now the highlight of my day, um, which wasn't going well to begin with. But now I'm feeling much better. But, but number two, I want to I ask you something. Do you believe his current mental state is such that reason and logic like you just laid out? Hey, boss, the numbers aren't there for you. You're going to lose. Do you, do you think he has the mental capacity right now to, to process that and, and go with a logical, rational decision? Yes, because whatever it is that's guiding him, what always guides him is the dollar, right? It's all about the money. So he loses that grifting ability, which he sees capable of doing forever. The second he loses the second, he can't be the boy who cried wolf and say, oh, they did it to me again. Holy shit. They fucking stole the election from us in 2020 and they did it again in 2024. That's not what I'm afraid of. What I'm afraid of, and I've been talking about this on this podcast forever now, Donald Trump 2.0. And I'm not referring to Don Jr. because he's got no shot in hell. I'm talking about the next Donald Trump, like the Ron DeSantis's of the world, right? Smarter, slicker, better financed. And now, now that they have a game plan, they've already seen what it takes in order to not get there, but get there enough. What can we do to enhance the failed game plan of Donald Trump so that we do create this movement? Which brings me really to the question that I want to ask you next, um, Frank. Gelman writes in this piece that Trump has built the first American mass political movement in the past century that is ready to fight by any means necessary, including bloodshed for its cause. In what ways has Trump operationalized this violence or even the threat of violence to achieve his ends? On top of that, can it be used, maybe with or without the assistance of Donald himself, by others, the person I was just describing, the Donald Trump 2.0? So you, you're on the money with the fact that Trump has essentially created what I'll call a template for tyranny a template for tyranny. And yes, it will be the model. And yes, while I breathe a sigh of relief as I as I put my faith in your knowledge of, of Trump, that he may not run, will not run, that should not give anybody pause that all the things we just talked about that are already in place, you know, minimizing uh, minority votes, gerrymandering redistricting, re- redistricting, reasonable Republicans fleeing the Congress, all of that is still a recipe for Republican victory in 2024, no matter um, who's there. And if Trump is out of that picture, you know, and you you raise an interesting scenario, my friend. You you raise a scenario where Trump steps out and his base is looking for the next him, right? I, yeah. I would I would rather run against Trump in some ways, right? Because he he's a buffoon and and maybe under indictment by then. Now you have a dressed up, smart Ivy Leaguer, DeSantis, Ted Cruz, whoever it is, and people are going to go, 
oh, I think I'm back in the Republican fold. This guy, this guy speaks eloquently and has a Harvard degree, right? And so now, armed with that template for tyranny, that reasonable, so to speak, dressed up Republican now has a far better shot of winning. But yet he's got all the fascist authoritarian issues that Trump has. This could be an even more disturbing scenario that you're presenting. Yes, with Donald looming like the fat cloud that he is over the back, like he did of Hillary Clinton during the debate, right? That's what he's looking for, to be the the, the rainmaker, the kingmaker, king to, you know, to be the guy that everybody still has to come to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring, assuming he's not in prison. Right. But, you know, when we talk, when I talk about how I know he's not going to run in 2024, you know, this past week, I launched an NFT, a non-fungible token series of that integrates politics with technology. It's mine. And right now it's at Art Basel. It was featured there through Art Grails. Um, and we're having a blast with it. It's my prison badge that floats around. It's me writing uh, in this prison cell, breaking out with the book Disloyal. The whole night, it's really... And we're auctioning off the, uh, what do you call it, the first page, uh, the first paragraph of the book Disloyal. But I say that because when... When I look to see at some of the documents that I still have that may ultimately be used, one of them that I have is his determination, and I have it because I wrote it, one of them was the 2011 decision not to run for the presidency. And if I read it to you, and I think I probably should have been smart enough and taken it out, um, if I read it to you, you would say, holy shit, that's eerily similar to exactly What's going on right now? Nothing has changed since 2011. When he, it was like a week before he had to make the announcement, he decided that there were reasons why he could not run. Despite the fact, you know, your heart has to be fully into it. The whole bit it was nice and flowery and all that other bullshit. And it was really because he knew he could not beat Barack Obama. All right. So there are several things that we have to look at as we're going to be, you know, fighting in 2024 to retain the White House. We have to look to see who the individual is that's going to be running against him. Possibly the single most important thing. You're, you're speaking about a Democratic candidate or a Republican challenger when you say we've got to pay attention to who's running against him? The Democrat. Yeah, yeah. This is the variable that we, we yeah, this could, this could throw, this could be the fly in the ointment that you're, that you're, you're purporting out there because if he views that person as exceptionally weak or the public polling says, nah, that's not presidential material, uh, th this could change. This could change. Not, not for Trump. Again, not for Trump. We, no, no, no. We have to go back to what we were talking about before. If, if they bring on a Republican candidate who has popularity and will have the backing of the Fuhrer himself, all right? It's extremely important yeah. to decide who is going to be the Democrat running against Absolutely. this individual. Absolutely. That's the single, to me, that's the single most important I wanna, thing. I, wanna, that, I, feel like I, I feel like I haven't, since I'm the kind of law enforcement intelligence guy, I, I feel like I haven't addressed your, your question, which, you know, we, we've diverted slightly, and, but it's all good. Um, you talked about violence, the violence that's brought up in this uh, Atlantic uh, piece. 
look, this is where I come from, right? I, that's what I, I look for the threats. And I'm telling you, the seeding of QAnon lunatics at, at the electoral, you know, little small town election official level, the volunteer level, the school board level, they are being seeded all through this process. And let me be clear. This is America. You, I love people volunteering to be election officials. Fantastic. Great. That's what we, we're all about. But not when they are violent extremists. And we are seeing those people planted. And it is a strategy, largely from Bannon, by the way, to seed these people. So who is it? Who is it that's going to be securing election places? Who is it that's going to be uh, messing with ballots uh, during the election? Yeah, these these are these are hardcore Trumpsters, and I'm I'm very concerned about that. And I can tell you this from public information: the FBI is very concerned about it. They've got a task force already to protect um, electoral uh, election officials, state, local, county, from threats. They're on it, but the fact that they've already got a task force on it tells me the threats are, are already disturbing. So you kind of jumped into the next question that I was looking to ask you, right? Because you recently said that the continued rise of right-wing radical extremism was once thought to be, an, and I quote, an over-the-horizon threat in the parlance of security analysts. But now the horizon is here. And the past year has been a dress rehearsal for something far more sinister about to be unleashed. Yeah. If you would do me a favor, go in a little further um, depth. Explain to my listeners what you think is coming, right? What will we see in the midterms? And what is it that keeps you up at night? Oh, gosh. So I, the, the quote you're saying was uh, made uh, on uh, Nicole Wallace's show on MSNBC. And it was, the context of it, Michael, was, in fact, this topic of election concerns um, and whether we're going to have a valid election that anybody in the United States agrees with. This this is the problem, right, is we the Trump administration was responsible for eroding confidence in our institutions to such a level that and now putting all of this stuff we've already talked about in place in the states for elections that we're going to reach a place in 2024. We'll, we'll get the preview of it in the midterms where I don't think either side will agree with the election. I think it's going to be a mess. And, and and Trump will be successful in pumping up his base to the point where he'll say, our guy has won, whoever the Republican candidate is, our guy has won. And they'll buy it. They'll buy it whether it's true or not. And if Democrats can show up in large numbers and, and overcome all of the rigging that's gone on, even if they're, they're going to do it, the other side's not going to accept it. And so I just listened this morning. There was a hearing on the Hill. It's still going on as far as I know as we speak. Uh, Capitol, the, the topic, the uh, reforms in the Capitol Police Department, the U.S. Capitol Police Department with regard to January 6th. I have to tell you something. I had to turn it off because the, the, the Congress was asking the correct questions of the witnesses. And I didn't hear the right answers as to whether or not the intelligence flow has been drastically increased, whether or not the Capitol Police have all the resources and officers they need, whether the hiring has taken place, whether, you know, the, the secure comms are in play. I, I, I had to turn it off. So that's not been fixed. That's not been fixed. 
No rules or laws or regulations for the FBI have been changed that allows them to monitor social media to the point where they don't have to wait for violence to occur, right? So you have this environment where no one wants the FBI spying on anybody, and I don't, on, on U.S. citizens, I don't either. But until we still don't have a domestic terrorism law. Um, so I see a recipe here. Uh, what else has happened in the last 24 hours? Devin Nunes has announced he's leaving Congress to do what? To head up <laughs> Trump's social media empire. So we are going to have Trump uh, on steroids. Social media has become um, you, you ask what keeps me up at night. So social media as a promulgator of radicalization is one of those things that keeps me up at night. And and we've done nothing about it. Who in Congress is going to stand up now and go, yep, we got to fix this as, as Trump's about to enter the scene in social media in a big way? This, 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 all that's, right. That's all right. All right. I got it. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me be very, very clear. And I said it in one of my tweets. All right. All you need to do is to look at Donald's previous business enterprises. Trump mortgage, Trump steaks, Trump vodka, you know, Trump shit, Trump toilet, Trump everything. His Trump suits, his ties, right? His furniture collection, his Trump ceiling mattress bullshit. Where are they all now? Out of business. Bankrupt. His casinos. Same shit. What's the chance that a Trump network, which right now has nothing other than his name with some crazy ass, you know, valuation of over a billion dollars? First of all, the question becomes, what are they even going to pay Devin Nunes? Right. He or, must have left. Well, for. Who, why does Devin Nunes even think he is going to get paid after Trump's record of not paying people? That's right. Yeah. What also gives Devin Nunes the belief that he has half a clue, forgetting maybe even a quarter of a clue on how to run a, a social media network, a television network, a news network. Devin Nunes couldn't even do his fucking job while he was in Congress. Now all of a sudden he's going to be the, nef, you know, the next uh, Jeff Zucker. He's going to be the next you know, um, head of ABC, NBC, whatever. It's not a possibility. He doesn't have the ability Right. So I'm shocked that Trump gave it to him. And the reason Trump gave it to him, you always with Trump, you always have to look around the corner because nothing is ever straightforward. He realizes he's going to fail and it's never going to get off the ground. So he's now bringing Devin Nunes into the fold for some purpose that he actually has right now. But. You know, I just wanted to continue something as we talk about this dress rehearsal and uh, the over-the-horizon threat. Let's not forget that there are real extremist groups that are out that are out there right now, right? Um, the Boogaloo's, you know, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and so on. He has figured out how to tap into this racist, you know. Islamophobic, homophobic, um, anti-Semitic rhetoric that these people believe and that they run with. And I believe that it's going to be much more dangerous because, like I said, the next slicker, better financed, smarter, you know, guy already has the playbook. It may be failed, but that's okay. 
This was, as we call it, the dress rehearsal for what is yet to come. And it's why I implore every one of my listeners. And every time I go on television or I give an interview to the press, I say the same thing. I implore every Democrat, every independent to make sure that you get out there and you vote. I don't care if it's you know, for your local dog catcher, to your mayor, to your governor, to the senator, you know, to the president. It makes no difference. Vote. And you have to vote across the Democratic line because their entire mo uh, modus operandi right now is to take over this country. And what's crazy, all in the name of who? Donald Trump. How? Why? Now, again, that's a smaller group of individuals, but... When you start bringing violence into the picture, it's really dangerous because people become afraid to go out and vote. And that's the worst thing that you can do when it comes to continuing democracy. We are, we are going to see that last point you just made. We're going to see that in droves. People, an attempt at least to make feel people feel fearful about getting out and voting. And in states that have curtailed their mail-in ballots, that people may feel like I, I have to show up in person to do this. Remember, people have been called from the from the voting rolls in many, many. Georgia has just called tens of thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of people off the rolls. Um, people are going to have to sign back up. People are going to say, hey, I thought I was a registered voter. They're going to show up on the day. Right. And they're going to go to somebody's registrar's desk and go, I'm I'm Joe Schmo. And they're going to go. Uh, we don't have you as a registered voter. You you were called and you never signed back up. Um, lots lots of potential for violent flashpoints. Um, yes, about seven hundred people approaching seven hundred defendants in the January sixth case right now. Some of them absolutely oath keepers, three percenters, proud boys. The big question for me as a law enforcement guy: Will that be enough of a deterrent um, to? to curtail the work of these uh, radical, violent extremist groups. We just had a group last weekend, a protest at the uh, a march at the Lincoln Memorial. It looked like a bunch of Nazis to me, tan cargo pants and, you know, plastic shields. I, I, th this is the mainstreaming of madness, and we'll be seeing more of it. Yeah. You know what Trump really wants? You ever see the movie The Gangs of New York? Yeah. You know, from years ago, right? What he really wants is he wants these groups to get out there to the, in those days, it was like the, the ballot boxes. Right now, you have the polling machines, and it doesn't make a difference to him. He wants them to do the same thing that they did in the movie when they were forcing everybody to vote for Tammany, right? If you didn't vote for him, you got a slapjack to the back of the head, right? And then they would tell somebody, get in there and vote. How many times did you vote? I voted twice. Get in there and vote a third time, right? This is what Donald wants. He doesn't want. And again, it's not even necessarily for himself. He wants to be the power behind the power. In that way, he's not going to be in front of the firing squad, which is where he is right now with the district attorney in New York, the attorney general in New York, in Georgia, in D.C., and other places that are investigating. Which is, which is why um, I have now decided to come out far more publicly about the, the seeming recalcitrance of DOJ to move forthwith to see the emergency that is here. I, I, I applaud DOJ's effort. Uh, again, 700 almost defendants in January 6th, an astounding investigative effort. But 
do I, do I think behind the scenes they're looking at the brood origins? Yes. Do I think they have, you know, there's evidence that yes, uh, planners, Trump even himself are on the radar screen? I do. Do I think they're moving fast enough? I do not. Yeah. And which, of course, brings me to, you know, my next question for you, Frank. Yesterday on MSNBC in talking about the continued rise of right wing extremism and Trump's manipulation of this group with uh, you on with Nicole Wallace. And you said, and I'm going to quote, DOJ is going way too slow. And they're playing by rules that are essentially boxing rules when the adversary is in a street fight. What in your mind can the DOJ do that it currently has not or is not doing to push back against the scourge? Yep. So I I want to acknowledge something here. They DOJ finds itself and the FBI between a rock and a hard place. Right. They they must continue to be the institutions that are objective that are neutral and apolitical. And they are rightfully concerned that if they were to come out and hold a press conference, which would be wholly inappropriate, by the way, and announce, just calm down, everybody. We do have Trump in our sights. We are looking at White House involvement. Right? If, they, if they do that, they're losing 20, 30% of the American society and creating an even more hostile environment, potentially. And they look very political doing it. So I, I'm not advocating for that. What I'm advocating for is speed speed times are wasting the the these things that are happening throughout the districts this lawsuit that they announced yesterday against texas fantastic but it happened it happened now you're cleaning up the wreckage so get out there and make it clear this is illegal stuff the states are doing you can't do it don't be messing with the election systems don't be threatening election officials start dragging people in handcuffs who are making threats against election officials Everybody should be against violence, against people who raise their hand and try to make democracy happen. Um, in the FBI, you know, let me make an, an analogy to a local police officer and the discretion a local police officer has who's behind you and sees that your your rear light is out. Right. Or, you know, your tag is obscured. That officer has a lot of discretion. Right. On a very small level to say, I, I'm hey, I'm giving you a warning or, or yeah, whatever, or, or, or go all the way and hit them with a $200 fine. Similarly, the FBI has, has tools to work with with regard to domestic terrorism and monitoring. They, could, they should be learning from January 6th on what they did not do, right, and what the rules allow them to do to head off violence. They erred on the side of caution, I believe. I believe the lawyers ruled the day at FBI headquarters and said, hey, 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 don't be spying on people who are just going to go protest. That that the gloves have to come off. If they're allowed to to actually intervene, if they're allowed to watch social media where people are planning violence, then by God, do it and do it now. Yeah, okay. Look, there's a lot to unpack there. First and foremost, I'm not a fan of the DOJ. I'm not a fan of Merrick Garland's. I was a huge supporter. When I heard that Joe Biden was going to nominate Merrick Garland as the attorney general, I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God. This is a guy who has integrity, but this is a guy who's tough and he's going to get the shit done. Well, you know, we're coming close now to the one year mark of President Biden's um, presidency. And Garland has done nothing. 
He sat on his fucking thumbs, right? And nothing has been done. Now you say, okay, 700 some odd people, um, you know, have now been uh, indicted, arrested. arrested for the January 6th. That's baby shit compared to what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about Donald fucking Trump. I'm talking about the insurrectionist in chief. That's, that's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Rudy Colludi Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, Don Jr., right? I mean, the, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz. I'm talking about all of these animals. And here's the thing that bothers me the most. If I was the president and I had hired Merrick Garland to be our attorney general, the first thing I would say to him, I don't want your hands into it. I don't want you being political because you're right. The Department of Justice should be apolitical. They were not in my case. They certainly got up. Merrick Garland got up. Everybody got up. Um, and the nonsense that I'm finding out, which will be uncovered in my next book, is just extraordinary about the, um, the activities that were going on between the president and the Department of Justice. It's out of control. But going back to the, the important thing here. That's why you have special counsels, because you want to show that you're apolitical. We will, ha we will find somebody that will be neutral, somebody that both parties can actually agree is fair. We just want to know the truth. And if you're a congressman and, or, if, or if you're a senator or a congressman and you don't want to know the truth, what the hell are you doing in D.C. up on the hill? You should leave the position like Nunez and go work for another one of Trump's failing companies or one that won't even exist. Do you follow what I'm saying, Frank? I've, yeah. kind of, I, I've kind of had it with the fact that everybody's like, well, you know, he wants to be apolitical. So he shouldn't be in it at all. Bring on a special counsel. And here's what I would demand. They have access as the president of the United States. He could empower the special counsel to have full access to all the information that's collected by everyone over the period of the four years. He has that ability to do it. And then he could release it as he deems classified or not. They could actually run an investigation off of the documents because when a Congress member or any member that is in um, Washington that works for the government you don't own your own emails. You don't own your own texts, all right? That's owned by you and me, the taxpayer, all right? And I'm entitled to that information if it's deemed non-classified. Well, okay. So the stuff that's classified, don't give it to me. Don't give it to the press. Give it to the special counsel and let them prosecute the people. Let them, if there's a conversation between Meadows and Giuliani, who's then turning around and writing in his email, um, just spoke to the boss, right? And this is what he told me to have you do. That's kind of significant. And that puts an end to all of this. You don't need to haul in 35, 36 people that are going to plead the fifth and make a fucking spectacle out of it, which is exactly what Donald Trump wants to do. So a couple of thoughts, a couple of thoughts. I'm with you. And, and in some ways, I'm not. Here's, here's why. Um, it's quite possible that a strategy of DOJ exists wherein they're waiting for a, again, back to this apolitical thing, which I know is driving people crazy. They're waiting for Congress to make the referral, that select committee, to make the referral of, of evidence that gives them further backing. They will say a bipartisan 
select committee has now presented evidence and a referral to us. We'll mix it with the evidence we've already gathered. This this massive January 6th inquiry is gathering tons of evidence, and we're now going to move forward. I, I think that's one strategy that's probably likely. They are they're in talks every day with the select committee. Number two, with regard to a special counsel, I come at this a little bit differently. Let's look at the incredible work that Mueller did as special counsel, indicted two dozen Russians. If anybody wants to say that Russians weren't involved, just please read volume one of the of the Mueller inquiry, and you'll see ah, two dozen Russians, uh, okay, including 12 GRU intelligence officers, by the way. And what did Mueller say? Yeah, there's, a, there's about 10 things here that are tantamount to obstruction of justice for Donald Trump. When asked in testimony on the Hill, Mr. Mueller, do you think he could be prosecuted for obstruction? Yes. Okay. Despite that, the special counsel, uh, now Mueller, has been viewed as a eh, big shrug of the shoulders from most people. Eh. So I, I want a Department of Justice that identifies a threat to democracy and says, step aside, we've got this. We've got this. We've got democracy. We don't need to appoint a special counsel who half the country is going to tear apart because, you know, he voted Republican or Democrat once. Um, the, I, don't God, God, I don't care. I don't care. Make me the special counsel and let them come at me. I've already been torn apart. I don't care. You let me do it. I'll turn around. I walk straight into the FOIA office and I say, this is what I want, my friend. You know why? Because I don't care what they say about me. The democracy and the future of this country is more important. Well, all I'm saying is. I don't want to live in a country where our Department of Justice says, well, yes, democracy is under tremendous threat, but, you know, we can't do this. We want to, we, for optics, we want to appoint somebody else to do it. No, it's your job, DOJ. Do it. Frank, let's also not forget that that's what we just came off of, a weaponized Department of Justice under the FETS law, Bill Barr, all right, who was literally in the pocket and up the ass of Donald Trump to the point that he unconstitutionally remands me back to Otisville because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. So as far as I'm concerned, the only way to offset the negative that that far right Bill Barr and Donald had done is you gotta, you're going to have to go a little bit to the left you know, on this one, uh, left of center. Otherwise, we will never get back on track. If, in fact, everything was par and everything was nice like a, like a flatline EKG, I'm with you on that one. But right now, we're in a precipice. We're at a precipice. This is this is why the evidence has got to be rock solid. And if it helps to get a referral from the select committee, right? If you're going to start putting the president's name in the subject line of an investigation, that you've got a former president, you've got to have that rock solid evidence. I think they're getting there. They got to move faster. And, and you and I can debate whether it's a special counsel or whether it's the DOJ. I just think that under under if you go in the dictionary under Depart U.S. Department of Justice, uh, what's their mission? Uh, preserve the Constitution and democracy. Oh, oh, OK. That sounds like this. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. So the January 6th committee, amongst other things, recently found, you know, um, White House metadata on Jeffrey Clark's Georgia memo. Right. And if the breadcrumbs do lead into the Trump White House, what does that ultimately mean? Could these people then be prosecuted under Georgia law? And at what point can we discuss accountability? Because with Trump, there's never accountability. 
So we we did touch on this in our discussion earlier. And look, I've said this is the most underrated media, uh, under underreported media story. This metadata, you can't argue. You know what? I I have a podcast called The Bureau. One of the episodes I, I entitled what happens on your device stays on your device. It was devoted entirely to cyber forensics, right? And this is, you can't make this go away. If there's if there's metadata, it is fingerprints. Um, and perhaps even right down to where the hell it came from in the White House. And that's really essential. And yes, Georgia should be asking for that right now because it gets to the letter that, that attempted to essentially change things in Georgia. And on a greater value, this could be a kind of smoking gun that points to Trump or things close to Trump. Now, you know better than I, this guy doesn't use uh, email. He doesn't, you know, he's not, he can't spell, met, he can't spell metadata, but, but someone close to him is involved in this. And this is where this is going. This is the kind of stuff that could cause DOJ to go, you know what? We are going to publicly uh, tell you we've got White House people, former White House people under investigation now for messing with the election. Well, he certainly can spell Kofifi, that's for sure. So, Frank, <laughs> so Frank, like I told you at the beginning, the hour goes by very, very quickly. I have one last question for you here. I want to change gears for a moment, and I want to discuss with you yesterday's news of an alternative Mueller report. Can you explain to my listeners what's in that report, what that report is, and why it wasn't initially released in the first place? Yeah, I, I here, and I want to caveat this by saying I, I don't have any special knowledge of this, so I've been watching the reporting on this. Here's my understanding, but it's Frank's understanding. Um, you know Andrew Weissman. Uh, and Andrew Weissman was a prosecutor with uh, Mueller. He has previously said that there was, and this may be the same thing now that we're hearing referred to as the alternate Mueller report, that he had his team. Now, remember, Weissman's team was kind of the Team M, which stood for Manafort uh, in the special counsel's office. But at the very least, he says he had his team uh, create an overall document. This makes a lot of sense to me in any big investigation. It's It's kind of an internal document. Here's everything we did. Here's our conclusions. Here's what we debated over. Almost attorney, almost attorney work product. Um, but you know, comma boss, if you want it to be part of your public report, here it is. This got filed away, and it's sitting there. That's my understanding of it, and it would give us tremendous insight into what the the staff attorneys working for Mueller actually were finding and doing, and don't forget FBI agents as well, and could give us really new insights into how Barr suppressed things, how Barr may have influenced Mueller to not put this in your report or don't put that in the report. If we were to see the actual internal work product, maybe even a draft, if this is a draft of what could have been in Mueller's report that was handed to him by his staff, I want to see it. There's no reason we should not see it. You know, it's funny. I never realized it. I actually have from all of the multitude of conversations and meetings that I had with Mueller's team. We actually took notes on every question that was asked. And it's got to be 40, 50 pages worth, right, of every question asked of me and every response. You know, I should go try to find that and dig it up. I think it would be very interesting in light of where we are today. But Frank, let me... 
I love the exercise, Michael, of, of looking at something like that because I like to glean things from what the investigators are asking you, right? I'm not so much interested in your responses, but where I come from is, hmm, the, what does that question tell me about what they know and where they're going? Yeah, and I certainly hope that whatever this um, alternate Mueller uh, report is, I hope that Andrew Weissman, who I have no confidence or faith in, I think he's as corrupt as the rest of them, to be honest with you, from some of the things that we're finding out in my specific case. One of the things that I certainly hope is that all the facts come out, all the reports, not the ones that he wants to cherry pick um, for the purpose of, you know, this book or whatever else that he's putting out there. But Frank, let me thank you for your time. As always, your insight is um, second to none. And um, I hope to have you back again soon because there's a lot going on that we really need to finish and talk about. And anytime, Michael. And uh, if for nothing else, you've brightened by day by the possibility that Donald Trump may, may not or will not, as you say, run. So thank you for that. Yep. Not possibility. Fact. Frank, okay. thanks so much, my friend. Be Take well. Care. Bye. Bye now. And now for today's mea culpa. Today's conversation should be a wake-up call to all of us who laugh and sneer at Trump and his MAGA cohorts. Granted, there is much to laugh about, especially as we dig into the details of the various conspiracies spun by Mark Meadows at the behest of Trump. The problem is that these things are a smokescreen for the very frightening and real anti-democratic efforts taking place on the ground at this very moment. Barton Gelman's essay does not speak of conspiracy, but rather how the sinister cabal surrounding Trump has manipulated and monetized that conspiracy for their benefit. In his editor's letter, The Atlantic's Jeffrey Goldberg writes, As we know, the system held, but barely, America having been blessed once again by dumb luck. When President Joe Biden was safely inaugurated, two weeks after the attack on the Capitol, a belief took hold that Trump and Trumpism might very well go into the eclipse. But that belief was wrong. So what now? The truth is that we can't simply put this genie back into the bottle. Trump cannot be canceled like the fucking apprentice. His political movement cannot be wished away. The reality is that we may be facing a terrifying new world where this type of political violence is matter of fact. Millions of Americans feel alienated from their own country and their fellow Americans. Explaining how and why this has occurred requires sober macroeconomic analysis as well as the writing of an entire sociology treatise. Until those issues are solved, we will be dealing with this problem one after another for the foreseeable future. If Trump doesn't do it, another opportunistic, authoritarian, fucking populist just like Donald Trump, but only better, will succeed in manipulating the grievances and anger of this population. I don't have the answers for this one, folks, and thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, and it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. 
And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.